0: Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let let the wife see that she respects her husband. Jesus, we just pause and we ask as we take a deep breath and step into your word that you would give us eyes to see this text through our own lives and not through Uh, the lives of how we want other people to receive this. And today, we pray for grace, God, as we talk about marriage. God, we pray that you would meet us and you would repair us and you would change us and move us to see this as the, the way that you see it. We want your vision for marriage today. So would you do that by your power and by your grace? We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. So we've started the series called Rooted Finding Life's Meaning. And the idea behind this whole series is that something profound happens to a person when their life gets put under the lordship and authority of Jesus. Now all of a sudden their whole life as it's rooted in Jesus is is reoriented in many ways and the way you see things, the way you approach life itself is very different. The way you approach church and marriage, and singleness, and parenting, and work, and and rest, all the ways that you see life, and in a lot of different ways, it begins to shift and change, and it's almost as if the Lord begins to infuse new meaning into these areas of our life, showing us how to really live. So you, maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're here and you've been hurt by the church. This is a great series for you because it's showing what happens if you actually choose to walk in the way of Jesus, how that's going to transform and change areas of your life. So today we're going to talk about. Marriage, And before we get too far, I want to just acknowledge that uh, Tim and Kathy Keller wrote my favorite book on marriage. This has been a tremendous help for me, uh, and Tim Keller in particular has been a really big help for my wife and I. Uh, his sermons and his teachings on marriage have in many ways helped us see things in Scripture that we've never seen before, helped, helped us see things in culture that we've never seen. So if you don't have this book, if you're married or single, it doesn't matter. There's something in here for everybody, and it's really, really great. Go to Amazon and buy this today. It's so, so helpful. But here's the idea. Um, He he has really shaped and helped me see how culture in many ways has infected the ways that I approach marriage. So what we want to do today is we actually want to try to get a biblical view of marriage. What is the vision that Jesus has for this thing called marriage? Now, already in saying that, some of you have just checked out because you're single or maybe you've uh, been married before and now you're divorced and you're like, well, there's nothing here for me. Well, let me say a couple things. Uh, The first is next week we're gonna talk about singleness and and that's gonna be good for both married and single people. But if you're single today, here's why I think this is really helpful, that you actually need to have a biblical vision of marriage too. Even if you never intend to get married, you need to be able to help those in your community because as we talked about last week, you've been saved into the body of Christ and now this new community, the church, is part of your identity as a follower of Jesus. So we actually need you to to grow in your vision of what a marriage is so that you can help those who are married. And maybe you're single and you're gonna get married and you wanna have a a healthy vision of what marriage is. And this is an overgeneralization for sure. There are people in our church that have wonderful views of marriage, but often what we find is that singles have two maybe extremes, two extreme views of marriage that can be really, really unhelpful. The first is this approach to marriage where you destructively over-desire marriage. It's seen as ultimate in your life. It's seen as the thing that you want uh, almost more than anything. And it's as if your life is put on hold until you achieve marriage or you get married. And that's just simply not what the Bible teaches at all. And it's funny because that over-desirous perspective of marriage is often found in the church. But then if you go out of the church into the world, the culture actually has a very, very different extreme problem. And that problem is in many ways destructively dismissing marriage altogether as something that's bad, something that's unhelpful, something that should be avoided because it's going to chain you down into commitment. And commitment is a scary word for our culture. So what you find is both in the church and out of the church, often two extremes on marriage that both lead to uh, either destructively over-desiring or destructively dismissing it altogether. And that's not at all what Jesus is offering us with this gift. And also what I found is e- even and maybe especially married people often have unhelpful views of marriage that are infecting and causing issues in their own marriage. I know this has been very true of me of, as I approached marriage and was actually more formed by the world and how the world saw marriage than I was by Jesus. So today what we want to do is just pause and ask the question, what is Jesus' vision for marriage? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to uh, give you two things from culture And then I'm going to give you two things from Ephesians chapter 5. And you you have to understand the cultural piece, I think, in order to fully enter in and appreciate and apply what we're being told in Ephesians chapter 5. So here's the first thing that I want you to see in culture is the unreal and distorted view on marriage. Here here are three important stats. The first is that the divorce rate today is about 50%. So about 50% of, of people that get married end up also getting a divorce. But in the 1960, the divorce rate was half that. That's pretty significant uh, over the years how divorce has been on the rise in drastic ways. In 1960, 75% of all U.S. adults were married. 75%. Today, it's less than 50%. More people are getting divorced. More people are not getting married. And then the third stat that's really important is that in 1960, the percentage of people who are cohabitating, people that are living together in a romantic way outside of the context of marriage, the the number was so small, it wasn't even worth uh, recording that percentage in 1960. There wasn't even a, a viable percentage. But today, more than half of all people live together before getting married. These are tremendous changes. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, hey, we should return to 1960 because there were no issues there. You know, just as well as I do, that 1960 had some jacked up stuff going on culturally, right? So that's not what I'm saying, but it is interesting to see that over the years, there's been some shifts in marriage, and all of them point to some assumptions that we all have and we all see all around us, even in our TV shows and the way that people joke about marriage. Here's the first assumption. Uh, most marriages probably are unhappy. I mean, if 50% of the marriages end in divorce, then the ones that don't get divorced, they're probably miserable and they're just barely hanging on. So marriage is probably something that's gonna make you miserable and unhappy. Here's the second assumption that we see. Uh, So as a result, because so many marriages end in divorce, the, the key to a satisfying marriage is actually finding the right partner. It's finding the, the right, perfectly compatible soulmate, and this is kind of described in our culture as someone who isn't going to change you, who is going to affirm uh, your, kind of your destiny and your path to life, and is going to come alongside of you not get in the way and change you in any way, but really just help you get to where you want to go. And then finally, here's the the, the assumption that's really popular is living together must be an excellent way to figure out if you are compatible with the person, especially if you have the right sort of romantic and sexual chemistry that really is so important in a marriage. So those are the assumptions, right? Most people that are married are unhappy, uh, so he- here's what we're going to do. We're going to look for the perfect compatible soulmate and then test the waters by living together to see if this actually really Works. And so all of that tells you this that our culture is just a little bit freaked out by the thought of marriage. We're just a little bit on edge. We're a little bit, uh, ha- we have some trepidation as we approach it, and we better test these waters and find the a- absolute right person if we're going to step into this. Now, th- those are some stats, but let me give you some other important uh, empirical data that I think should shape the way we see marriage. Yes, it's true that 50% of all marriages end in divorce, but you know what's fascinating is that. The greatest percentage of people who get divorced are people that got married under the age of 18 or did not graduate high school. Maybe you didn't even realize that that was a thing, underage marriage. Uh, I think Oklahoma is third in the U.S. for rate of uh, underage marriages. So most of the divorces happen. People didn't go to, didn't finish high school or they're under the age of 18. So here's what's interesting. If you actually go to high school, college, you get married in your early or mid-20s, your likelihood, chances of of getting a divorce go drastically way, way, way down, right? Here's another thing that's really interesting, that those who live together before marriage are actually more likely to get divorced than those who do not. So actually, cohabitation isn't practicing for marriage. Cohabitation is practicing for divorce, which is really bizarre. Uh, In general, this is also true, the earlier that sex is introduced inside of a romantic relationship prior to marriage, the more likely that relationship is to break up. Two-thirds of all marriages that said said they were unhappy when polled, two-thirds of all marriages, if they waited for five years and then re-polled those same couples, they would say, yeah, two-thirds of them would say, now we're happy. They just gave it a little bit of time and worked through it. And then, this is interesting, over the last 40 years, the stat has almost remained unchanged. In general, 62% of all married people said that they were very happy with their marriage very happy not happy but quote very happy so here's what's interesting our culture has this really bizarre distorted unreal view of marriage that it's it's scary and it's hard and it's dangerous and and it'll rob you of all your joy so don't touch it and if you do then make sure you find the right person and then test the waters by living together but the data actually shows that that isn't working so here, here, here's my point the p- first points over culture has a distorted view of marriage can we agree Maybe we can't, but at least I tried to show you why I think so. Here's the second thing I want you to see. There has been a dramatic shift in our approach to the meaning and purpose of marriage. A dramatic shift. Uh, Over the years, we've gone from a more traditional view of marriage to a shift in why we even get married in the first place. So here's the traditional view of marriage. The, the traditional view, and really the biblical view, is that marriage is this this greenhouse, if you will, where a, a man and a woman can come together and learn over time to be committed and be faithful and to love each other. And actually, it's, you're putting your needs on the back burner for the good of the marriage, and, and fighting for the marriage itself becomes more important than fighting for your own personal needs or wants or desires and and marriage is a place where you can grow into maturity because you you step in and as a man uh, or as a woman we've got certain aspects of our gender that are really really great and beautiful we have other aspects of our gender that are distorted and unhelpful or weak and so what's happening is in marriage we're coming together and learning how to live together and 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 help bolster each other's weaknesses and then mesh in each other's strengths this is what's happening. And then traditionally, it's been seen as a place where we can raise children together because we know the data on raising kids together and, and the, ef- the positive effect that uh, that has. That's been the traditional relationship to marriage. However, that's very, very different today. John Witte Jr., uh, an American uh, professor of law, he says this, he says, the older ideal of marriage as a permanent contractual union designed for the sake of mutual love procreation and protection is slowly giving way to a new reality of marriage as a, quote, terminal sexual contract designed for the gratification of the individual parties. So here's the point. Historically, marriage was I subjugate myself, right? I actually subordinate me for this thing called marriage. Today, that's very different because marriage is about me. It's about my desires and my wants. Uh, Tara Parker Pope wrote a really interesting article for the New York Times titled, The Happy Marriage is the Me Marriage, and she's defending this idea that marriage should be about me. Here's what she says. She says, The notion that the best marriages are those that bring satisfaction to the individual may seem counterintuitive. After all, isn't marriage supposed to be about putting the relationship first? Not anymore. For centuries, marriages were viewed as an economic and social institution, and the emotional and intellectual needs of the spouses were secondary to the survival of the marriage itself. But in modern relationships, people are looking for a partnership, and they want partners who make their lives more interesting, who help each of them attain valued goals. Therefore, marriage used to be about us, but now it's about me. This has been a profound shift in marriage. Here, here is what our culture says right now about marriage, that it's about you, and, and you have to find this perfectly compatible soulmate that isn't gonna change you, that isn't going to make you different, that isn't going to get in the way of your valued goals and what you want to do with your life. You've got to find this this perfectly compatible soulmate that's going to accept you just as you are and and just affirm everything about you. Oh, and the the sexual and romantic chemistry has to be off the charts. I mean, you've got to be like constantly wanting to jump into bed together, and that's the sign that you have a really good and a really healthy marriage. It's all about personal fulfillment and happiness now. Now, he, let, before we jump into Ephesians 5 and unpack the two things that I want to show you there, I want to just point out the glaring problem with culture's view of marriage. Is there anything wrong with that approach to marriage? A marriage that's built around me and all about me? Well, here's what's really interesting. I want to argue that that approach puts tremendous pressure on a marriage. In fact, it puts, so much pre- it puts more pressure than the Bible ever put on marriage. It puts more pressure on marriage than any traditional culture ever in the history of the world has ever put on marriage. Why is that true? Well, think about it. Who do you have to find for a me marriage to be successful? Who do you have to find, class? (laughs) Here's who you have to find. Someone who doesn't think there's anything wrong with you whatsoever, right? There's nothing about you that needs to be changed. You're perfect, Good luck with that. And not only that, but you have to find someone that you don't think is there's anything wrong with, right? They're perfect just as they are, and, and you don't want to change them, and you don't want to like it's everything's great, and they're gonna reach their goals, and I'm gonna reach my goals. You have to find that, and then on top of that, you have to be so ridiculously attracted that the the sexual and romantic chemistry is off the charts. You're always wanting to just jump into bed together, and then here's what's really crazy: if you add on top of that, oh well, and I want it to be virtuous. I, I want to marry a Christian, obviously then now you add that on top of all these other expectations and it gets unbelievable. So much pressure. Like, here's what I'm trying to say. If, you, if you've bought into the cultural Kool-Aid of what marriage is all about and then you try to add on top of that, oh, and I want to marry a follower of Jesus, I want to marry a Christian, then here's, here's what you're doing. You're, you're putting so much demand and pressure on marriage that you'll either never, ever, ever find the right soulmate that's perfectly compatible or you will find who you think is that person and you'll get married and then you'll realize that it's hard. You realize that it's messy and it's difficult and then you'll wake up one day and you'll go, I've married the wrong person. It's because you've bought into the way that culture sees marriage. You see, here's the truth. Marriage is glorious and marriage is gloriously hard. Can I get an amen from anyone who's been married for longer than a few years? It's glorious, and it is gloriously hard. Ask my wife. She has so many stories. It is not easy to be married to me. No to amen. Thank you. Thank you for that, Charlie. It's it's really true, though. It's really true. See, here's what's so crazy. There's this myth of compatibility. No two people are ultimately compatible. Why? Because all of us are actually sinful, and we're naturally bent to be self-absorbed and self-centered and self-concerned. And that makes marriage tough because we're consumed with ourselves. And you add on top of that that men and women are just profoundly different anyway. And when you get those, those things together, it just collides into something that is really, really difficult. Stanley Hauerwas says this. He says the assumption is that there's someone just right for us to marry. And that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This assumption, I love this, this assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, listen to this, for marriage, being the enormous thing that it is means that we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary problem then is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. Can I get an amen from anybody that that resonates with? It's like, who are you? What happened? I don't, you entered marriage and it changed you because it's that enormous. Can the Bible help us here? Does Jesus have anything to offer? Yes, absolutely. Christianity has a beautiful biblical view of marriage that I think is really freeing. So let me give you two things real quick. Here's the first thing from this passage in Ephesians 5 that I want you to see. I want you to see marriage as a covenant. That's not a word that we throw around very often, but look at Ephesians 5.31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Marriage as a covenant. It's hard to, to, to realize this sometimes, but that, the idea of two becoming one, one flesh that is inherently covenantal language that harkens back to Genesis chapter 2. This is literally quoted from Genesis 2 where God, he brings the first man to the first woman and he he, he both functions as the officiator of the very first wedding and then he functions as the witness of this wedding where he observes, uh, he observes and then what he does is he he makes this comment about it. He says, what's happening is that a man's going to leave his father and his mother and the two are going to become one flesh and that is inherently covenantal language again that's not something that we throw out what's a covenant and why is that a big deal well here's what a covenant is tim keller says and it's an incredible unbelievable counterintuitive merger of love and law see here's the idea behind a covenant uh, most marriages are just built on romantic feelings of love that you have for another person. And as long as those romantic feelings of love can be sustained, then the marriage can be sustained. But not so in a covenant. It's actually different because it's not just romantic feelings of love. It's that with law. Some people go, why do I need a piece of paper to get married? Well, I'll tell you why. Here's why. Because what happens in the context of a marriage is you're standing up before God and humanity, before God and people, and you're saying, listen, I love you so much that I am... Committing myself not just to feel romantic love for you. I am committing myself to be loving towards you. To be kind to you. To be faithful. To be compassionate. To be committed. I'm I'm covenanting myself to you for better or for worse. For richer or for poorer. In sickness or in health. Till death do us part. And that right there creates the significant way that marriage can, can cause romantic and, and, and all kinds of types, all types of love to thrive and to flourish. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it like this. He's talking to a, a young married couple. He says, it is not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on the marriage that sustains your love. That is radically different. Sometimes I'll have uh, a married couple, a husband and a wife, come and they're like, I think I'm falling out of love with my spouse well that's okay because a couple reasons one you're doing the right thing and owning that and being honest about that and pursuing help and counsel and trying to figure out but that right there is step one for your marriage itself to do the work to sustain your love because it's not just built on romantic feelings of love it's built on this covenant this merger of love and of law This is profound. And by the way, I just want to say, if if you're like, well, that sounds dry and boring and not romantic and forced, and, well, let me just say that actually this merger of love and law is where real love and romance and beauty and life can start to flourish. It really is. How is that true? Well, here's how. It creates this weird thing in me. Like, I remember when I stood before Hillary on our wedding day. She looked me in the eyes and she covenanted herself to me. And she said, I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm going to be kind to you. I'm going to be loving towards you. I'm going to be, like, I, I'm going to forgive you. We're going to do this together. And she basically said, for, for better or for worse, rich or poor, she, she, she went through those vows. And, and it was like this, this release in me of I can be who I really am. I can really, like, for lack of a better term, let my hair down, right? Let my beard down. And, uh, and just be myself, and learn to receive love from her and learn to give love to her. And by the way, it's really impossible, it can't happen when you're living to, together, when you're cohabitating, it can't happen. Why why do I know that to be true? Well, because if you're cohabitating, you're in some sense still in marketing and promotion. Right? It's like you're practicing you know, having the the easy button just to tap when things get hard and the keys are on the table and and if you don't like it or if you're seen without your makeup or whatever, it's like, well, I don't know if I, like you can't ever just be you and receive love and give love. Covenant is a merger of love and of law and that's the vision that Jesus has had for marriage. It's how real love can be sustained. Here's the second thing I want you to see and I'll be done. Marriage, it's not just a covenant, but marriage is a picture. Marriage is a picture. Look at Ephesians 5, verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, look at this comment. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage, ultimately, is a picture of the love, the commitment, the devotion, the self-sacrifice that Jesus has for his church. And this is bizarre. It wasn't like God scanned the earth trying to find a picture and then went, oh, there's a man and a woman in love. That reminds me of my love for the church. No, before humanity existed, he felt a deep love for people, a deep commitment for humanity, a deep devotion for humanity, so much so that he actually instituted, created, and designed this thing called marriage just to give us an idea of how he feels about us. A man on his wedding day standing before his bride, the passion and the intensity and the devotion and the love, that's the type of love that Jesus has for you and for me. And that love over time begins to reshape and reform how you start to see marriage. It even lays a new foundation for how to approach marriage. Because notice what Paul goes on to say. He goes on to say this. Look at this. Uh, Wives, this is verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and as himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands i know just like right out of the gate that that's everybody's favorite passage like i know that all you ladies like you have that above your bed you know like you memorize no like this is that's a horrible word in our culture what do you do with that word some of you you've like i've been offended every time you've read that right yeah i know i felt it <laughs> what is submission well it's actually a, a thing that our culture mocks in one level but on a different scale we actually really appreciate and love children submit to parents we all submit, by the way. Uh, people in, in the U.S. submit to governing authorities. Uh, we, you know, if someone's driving down the highway going 180 miles an hour, hopefully they're going to eventually submit to the law. I mean, we, we value submission in a lot of other ways, and ultimately Jesus himself, the second person of the Trinity, submitted to God the Father. So submission does not mean that you're less than, It doesn't mean that you're devalued. It doesn't mean that you have no voice or opinion or can't speak out and tell what you want to have happen. Submission means none of that. We see Jesus doing all of those things with God the Father. Submission doesn't mean that you follow your husband into sin. Submission doesn't mean that you're a doormat for abuse or sexual abuse. It doesn't mean that at all. What is submission? It's intelligent, wise, deferential respect and love for your husband. Intelligent wise, deferential respect. And do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying, the way the church loves Jesus, that's how I want you wives to love your husbands. It's like he pulls the wives in a room. Don't worry about them. Here's what I want you to do. Here's your new role. The foundational way that Jesus has shaped his love towards us begins to shape the way that we love. All right, now, ladies, you've got two verses. Fellas who are married, you've got like 27 verses. He who loves him wa- his him, he who loves his wife, loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. I'll let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Man, what this is unpacking for you fellows is that when you step into marriage, the love that Jesus has had for you begins to shape the way that you are called to now love and treat her. It means that your needs become secondary and backseat. It means that your preferences and your desires and your life, it goes back so that she can go forward. It means that you are eager to lay your life down in a thousand menial small ways throughout the week that you are able and willing and doing that because that's how you've been loved. It means that you don't hold things over her head. It it means that you don't uh, throw bitterness back into her face because of things that she's done to you. You release her the way that Jesus has released you The way Jesus has treated you, that becomes the model and the foundation for how you treat her. And that's hard to do. I can't read this passage without experiencing just incredible conviction because my love looks more like culture's love than it does any love that's shaped by the gospel. Here's what culture tells us about love it says, Love someone only if you have a guarantee that you will be loved equally in return, love someone only if certain conditions are met. Love someone only if it's convenient and comfortable for you to do so. Love someone in order to manipulate them to do for you whatever you want done. Culture says love someone in order to deepen your self-esteem or to satisfy your own desires and longings. Love someone for the time being, so long as it feels right, so long as it doesn't interfere with your plans for your life. Culture's love. Gospel-centered love. Love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. Love driven by this, this Jesus who is loved, is love being lovingly honest and humbly approachable in times of misunderstanding and being more committed to unity and love than you are to winning, accusing, or being right. Gospel love is love that's being a good student of your spouse, looking for physical, emotional, and spiritual needs so that in some way you can remove the burden, support them as they carry it, or encourage them along the way. I really have a hard time doing this. That's gospel love. Love is the willingness to make regular, costly sacrifices for the sake of your marriage without asking anything in return or using your sacrifices to place your spouse in your debt. That's covenantal, gospel-centered love that's a picture of the love that Jesus has had for us. I'll never forget when uh, Hillary and I held hands for the first time and kissed. I won't share the story of holding hands for the first time because it was really awkward on my part um, and and embarrassing, but I'll never forget the first time and I'll never forget the things that I was feeling. When we held hands and when we kissed for the first time, it was like this electrifying feeling. It's like, this is amazing. I mean, I was just head over my heels in love with her. Some people still ask, like, well, do you s- still get the same feeling when you kiss her now and hold her hand now? Not really. <laughs> Not the same. It's different, right? It's, it's a different feeling that I have now. And, and here's why I say that. If you're like, oh, that's awful. Well, here's why I say that. Because as I've assessed my own heart and as I've gone back and kind of examined what was happening in my own soul when I was holding her hand and we were kissing the first time, it was that this person that I admired, this person that I thought was really attractive, this person that I thought was just amazing was showing interest in me and she found me attractive. That's amazing and she thought I was great and I think I'm great too and so here's this other person that's affirming all the things that I think about myself and here's what it was. The feelings that I was having, it was mixed for sure but it was less love and more ego. It was more ego. She thinks I'm great. Now when I hold her hand, And when we're putting kids to bed late at night, and when we plop down on the couch because we're just (laughs) exhausted from putting kids to bed, and in the good times and in the hard times, and when we kiss, it's way less ego and way more love. I really love her for who she is, not for the way she makes me feel. You see, here's the natural flow of a healthy marriage. You ready? You fall in love. But in reality, you're just falling in love with your idea of who that person is and not the real person. Years go by, and you find out who that person really is. And you find out who you really are. And you each find each other's flaws and sins and brokenness and addictions and issues and ugh, And you just become totally disillusioned with each other. And then, by God's help with the gospel as our power... You learn to rebuild and learn to respect one another because you see each other hanging on and staying committed and apologizing and forgiving and offering grace and embracing and repenting. And you just learn to love that person for who they really are and for what they've been through for you. And that becomes the greenhouse where real love can be rebuilt and real romance can start to happen and there's, there's nothing more sexy in the world than that type of love. That's real love. So where do we go from here? Well, how do we transition <laughs> from people that are wrapped up in culture and love like culture to people that are wrapped up and rooted in Christ and love like Christ? How do we do that? I actually think it's impossible to do in our own strength and our power because isn't it really hard to keep forgiving over and over again? Isn't it really hard to keep repenting? Isn't it hard to keep offering grace, to keep offering compassion, to stay when it's just so much easier to get the keys and leave? Well, here's how you do it. When you remember that when you were at your worst, Jesus on the cross, he loved you and he stayed. He did not leave, he didn't walk away. When you were at your worst, his heart was overwhelmed with love. He took your sin. He didn't hold it over your head. He took the judgment for your sin. He absorbed the pain of your mistakes and your rebellion and your brokenness. He didn't throw it back in our face. And he forgave. And when you experience that forgiveness, over time, it teaches you how to forgive. It teaches you how to love. It teaches you how to offer grace again and again. And again, that's the type of thing, the unconditional, unbelievable love of God for me that can sustain an unconditional love in my marriage.